Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Well, folks, I'm super excited to bring to you this conversation with Rob Butler, a friend of mine that I have known for many years here in the industry. Rob is the founding director of Xvergence, based out of Austin, Texas. And we're going to have a fun chat today about the lovely world of the indirect channel and what it's been like for both of us as we've explored and navigated building our firms in and around this industry. So without further ado, Rob, how the hell are you? I'm good. Thank you, Sean. Morning. Good morning. So where where are you physically right now? I am physically in my office in Austin, Texas. Um working and uh enjoying a beautiful Tuesday morning. So are you I think I've asked you this before, but I forget, are you originally from Austin, Texas? I am originally from a little town south of Austin called Corpus Christi, a couple hours south of San Antonio. But I have called Austin, Texas my home since 91 when I went to college. I went to the University of Texas. And um, I have done everything I could to stay here. I love the town. I love what it's become. I love what it was. And um, I'm still a big Longhorn fan at the end of the day. Someone, someone asked you if you're a native Austin or Austinite. You say yes. Um, I would like to own it, but there are those that are that say that I'm not. So I, I would say I'm not, but I, I got here as fast as I could. Gotcha, gotcha. So when you were growing up, did mm-hmm. you how how in the world did you get into tech? Because I noticed right out of college you jumped into into tech. Were you involved in and around technology as a at a young age? Did you have parents that kind of introduced no. you to it? How did that come about? Zero. So good question. Um, no, I didn't. So what I did was I lived like most people did in college. I had a house full of uh, guys, roommates, and um, I went to school and I studied finance and got a degree in finance. And immediately out of college, what you don't see on there is I went to work for Dell in their finance department <laughs> and um, crunching numbers. Um, and I found the worst experience of my life. I did not like it. Um, I liked Dell. I liked the organization. I didn't like the environment I was in. And I found myself gravitating 
towards sales groups and those people and just all the activity and the commotion, technology. Um, and the interesting thing is I never actually made it to the Dell sales department. I, uh, I left and immediately jumped to a um, small computer organ company that were building PCs, you know, before, you know, as Dell was growing up, there were still a lot of companies at the time who um, built personal custom PCs and servers. And so I cut my teeth doing that very early. I had my roommates that were already at the organization and um, I got over there and that's when I started actually building PCs by hand and putting motherboards together and that memory cards and all the fun stuff that, that goes along with it. You basically just threw yourself into the fire and learned by doing. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. 100%. Yep. Um, okay, so you, you start playing around with computers, figuring out how they work and operate, and then when and how did you migrate into the, the world of network? <laughs> so, good question. So, as with most, I think, around the early 90s, um, as computers took off, or probably mid-90s, and, and late-90s, I should say, probably date myself there. Um, boy, all those first-person computers and video games become, they were everywhere. And, um, and so I, like a lot of people, got really into Quake um, and a lot of these different games that were going on when I was young. And uh, we got together. And so with that, you know, it was fun to play people online but it was even more fun to play all your friends in these big networking environments so <clears throat> it wasn't out of the question for a lot of us to get together and do these land tournaments and land parties you know this is before you know the internet was really around very much and so we spent a lot of time figuring out how to connect and integrate you know 15 to 20 computers put everybody on the same network and, and kind of create those environments so people could play each other um and uh exact same thing in college and we had some pretty kick-ass uh 007 golden eye tournaments exactly exactly yeah so quake was a big deal for me um huge deal for me i probably wouldn't have gotten married if quake came around when my wife was around it uh i, I played a lot of quake say that so you're you're quake head and you're working uh but you, you eventually sort of work in in that space I did. So, you know, with anything, I, I immersed myself and I liked it so much. The gaming world that um, what it was, I started looking around and saying like, okay, well, how, you know, what can I do to improve my experience here and make it better? And so what I realized is the problem I had at home was I was on dial-up because um, broadband certainly wasn't everywhere and um, few people had it. And you always knew when you were playing games who had broadband and didn't because of latency and all the other things you've come to learn and, and understand in networking. <laughs> and so because of the latency, because of a slow internet connection, I was losing not because I wasn't as good, but because they could see and do things faster than me. And so what I realized is I needed more bandwidth. And the best way to go get more bandwidth was to go to the heart of it, which was an internet service provider. <laughs> and as I got to the internet service provider, um, and working with a local small ISP here in Austin for, for a number of years, I realized that even the better place to go was the data center. And, uh, and that's when I think my first really experience with a data center was probably like in 99 or 2000. 
when Exodus kind of showed up and, and was in town in Austin and they were the big shiny new data center. And um, boy, that was the place to be if you had a game server. So just kind of, you know, I, I tell everybody that if it wasn't for gaming, I'm not sure I would have ever gotten into technology at all. So, so let's, let me just ask a couple questions around that. Did you have a gaming console when prior to coming to college? I did. You know, I had um, the old ColecoVisions and, and all the old um, Ataris, things like that. Certainly did. You know, much like what you see kids have today. I was <laughs> Donkey Kong and Adventure and all the rest of those little games. Um, but they were nothing like the, the first-person kind of point-of-view games that came out and just how the graphics on them. And then, then there was just the ability to um, tweak your computers because part of my you know, going down the path and learning about computers from a personal level is the ability to overclock them, do more with them, you know, try and get more power out of these machines. And um, so, yeah, it's just, it was all kind of tied together. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So eventually you make your way to a company that most people who are in and around the indirect side of the house have heard of by the name of Talaris out of Salt Lake mm-hmm. City. Can you yes, walk us through that, that story? Yeah, so you know, I I had worked at an organization called New Edge Networks um, with a handful of other guys in in, in Austin, and uh, <laughs> I met um, Adam and Patrick, the two founders, when they were very early into a business that's uh, now called Tolaris. At the time, it was Shop for T1. Um, how most of the industry knew that that brand and that organization. I believe when I started, I was there fourth or fifth employee, something about that. Um, and they were very, very early on. We were still uh, heavily dependent upon web leads. Um, Adam and Patrick had had a really great idea about being able to go online and um, work within the Google uh, environment and and get web leads. And, and they were super successful. Um, and what they learned early on is that if you have the leads, all the partners will come and the partners came. Hundreds and hundreds of partners came to Tolaris, shop for T1 at the time. Real quick, and that real organization. Quick, real quick, I'm just realizing for those who don't yeah. know who Tolaris is, what can you describe what what and who Tolaris is? Sure, sure. So so Tolaris is a they're one of the large distributors that are out there today, similar to like Ingram Micronet and Tech Data and these guys, except they were born from the services side of the business. So they've always sold originally telecom services, but now they sell and distribute telecom, cloud, data center, um, and pretty much anything else that's as a service, you can buy and distribute through these big distributors today, like Tolaris. And they're, they're one of the very large ones that are in the industry. Gotcha. Sorry, sorry to interrupt the, the flow that no, you had good. going on. Yeah. No problem. So you, you're in there early days, employee number four, and you watch the yep. firm just explode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you yeah, were doing we, this out of Austin. You weren't living in Salt Lake City, right? No, no, I did it out in Austin. But, you know, it, it's interesting enough. You know, it started off living in Austin. But by the time it was was done, what I realized, um, I wasn't living in Austin anymore. I was living on an airplane. And that's what happens in the world of distribution is, you know, as you grow as a distributor, get partners from every corner, every crack, every every place in the world, or especially the United States. And with any relationship, you have to go and see them and nurture those relationships and partnerships. 
So as the organization grew um, and different partners came on, required a lot more travel. So yeah, I started out in Austin doing this thing with them and, and um, ended kind of on the road. But in between, <clears throat> you know, what we saw was saw so much growth and so much change with that within an organization because we tried so many different things to try and um, grow the business. And it was, it was such a good time because that particular industry was hadn't, it wasn't as mature as it is today. Um, it's definitely a much different environment today than it was when they first started. And were there other, like who, who were the other major distributors and, and what we call you know, master agents yep. in the community yep. at that in time? In the early days? Yeah. So, you know, in the early days, um, Hellas has been around for a long time. Planet One's been around for a really long time. Microcorp's been around for a long time. Uh, TBI up in Chicago has been around for a long time. WTG Invents has been around for a really long time. Um, and at the time, <clears throat> those were really staples in telecom distribution. Uh, and I, I'm probably leaving one out, and I apologize if I am, but those were off the top of my head staples in telecommunication. Polaris was the new kid on the block. Shop for T1 was the new kid on the block. And I can tell you from having gone through it, most of these other distributors laughed at Polaris, number one, just because of their model, and number two, just because they were the new kids on the block who nobody really thought were, were going to grow and do as well as they did. <laughs> um, and so it's, uh, you know, but, but times have changed, right? And so these distributors, now there are, there are a lot of new players in the marketplace, and it's really interesting seeing how these new players are kind of growing and what they're doing little bit differently to uh, make make value for their partners. So what was unique about their model at the time? Yeah, so Tolaris, you know what the, the things that made them who they were early on were number one, I would say the leads were huge. But number two, they were the first and really the only one to focus on automation and you know trying to provide some unique tools to the marketplace that didn't exist. And so when they first started, um, that the products like T1s and, and some of the smaller commodity-based products didn't require a lot of fiber builds and so forth, were very easy to price. And so what was happening at the time was the, the industry were having to go to these providers, these service providers, and actually get pricing. So if you, if you had a customer in San Francisco and they wanted to see you know, pricing for these types of products, a person or an organization would have to go out and individually contact different service providers to find out what is it going to cost to deliver that service at this location. Polaris looked at this, Patrick looked at this and said, there's a better way to do this. We can, we can automate this. We can put this on in, in, in a tool and put in an address, and have it go out and collect that data and bring it back. So, you know, you see and you hear a lot of that Day as it relates to application integration using APIs. Polaris and, and Shop for T1, I started hearing about APIs 15 years ago with Polaris because they were trying to hook into all the providers and they were trying to API into the providers so they could pull that data back and provide the, their partners with a system that would allow them to see pricing and information quickly across multiple brands. So. You, you, if the best way to think about this is if you think about like what has gone on in the travel industry with Expedia or any of these other 
websites you go on and say, I would like to fly from Austin to San Francisco, and you see all these different price points pull up. Well, Telerus built the same tool, but for pricing and telecommunications. And it's never really stopped. They've continued to innovate and do that around fiber, uh, phones. Um, you know, and some of the, sometimes the tools have their problems, but they, um, it, they continue to keep innovating. It's one of the things that continues to make them unique and a little bit different in their space. And you've spent a long time there. Yeah, I, I spent a decade, right? Yeah, right about 10 years. I did. So, and it was uh, a really great ride. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it, I feel very fortunate and blessed to have, have experienced that just because um, I was able to grow up in that business distribution start. You know, we were operating out of, I call it the frat house. It was, it was a two-story condo in Salt Lake. I would fly into Salt Lake and there would be 10 of us packed into a small room and just trying to figure it out. And the majority of those people were programmers and coders trying to figure out, and again, early days, right? Trying to figure out how to make better tools for Tolaris partners. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and then now if you look at them, I think they're at hundred employees plus and they take up a couple of floors and, yeah, people all over the U.S. and different markets, and so they've really kind of taken off um, from where they were to where they are now. How how was all that funded early in the early days? Was it all self funded? Hundred percent bootstrapped. Yeah, that's the thing. So Adam and Patrick pulled stuff out of savings. They you know they they cashed in money. They uh, cashed in favors. Um, they uh, they didn't take salaries for a long time. You know, and so. Yeah, you know, I remember hearing that, you know, like there there were several people in the organization that were making money and they weren't. They were actually getting paid out of savings, right? So they bootstrapped the whole thing from front to back. Um <clears throat> Adam is a the Wizbang account and finance guy himself. So he he fully understands money and gets it and he's very conservative around it. So yep. at at one point in that process, it mm-hmm. kind of dawned on you that maybe there's a different career path. What, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you remember that moment and that uh, oh, yeah. train of thought? Absolutely. Um, the <laughs> train of thought in the moment was the day that I was introduced to channel sales and people in the channel partners um, where there were businesses that were successful businesses that were making gobs of money um, doing what I was already doing, but they were doing it on their own. I was very intrigued by that. <laughs> and in fact, I still to this day tell people, especially new people coming into the channel, that it can be the greatest thing that's happened to you in terms of your career just because you get to learn something new and it's a new experience and how to sell. It also can be the thing that really just spins you out because for me, what I found is I always wanted to do my own thing. If you, and I tell people, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit at all, when you get in channel and you work around, I mean, at Tolaris, I worked around thousands of people that own their own business. And after you do that for a decade, you know, you've heard the business models, you've seen what makes people successful. And then you see successful people that are out there and you, you just you know that you can do that. And so it just begins to, it just, it eats at you. And, and to the point where either, you know, you, you eventually find the place to do it, or I think you just have to cash in on that dream. 
and um, and it's it's a uh, you know it, it's a very difficult thing to do if you if you have an entrepreneurial spirit and want to do things on your own coming into the channel and working in the channel um, is tough because you you will see the opportunities come up constantly. So this this is kind of the meat of the conversation I want to have with you, my friend. Um, yep. Because many, I think it's. Uh, what I've seen and what I hear is that it's like 95 plus percent of those who see that opportunity want to take that opportunity, leave the comfort of a carrier or a service provider of some sort and venture into this space. Don't survive two years. They end up going back to the stability and security of an FTE with someone somewhere. Yep. So what, you know, what what are those traits that you think help make you successful um, yeah. through that process? You know, that's a great question. Um, I'm a glutton for punishment. It's probably the best way to put it. I, I it just it would be easier working for somebody else, and I never understood that until I got on this side. It yeah, would, I, but I, I want to expand I, on that because yeah. most of the people that I know who are successful. They yeah. build up a base of recurring commissions kind of on the side, right? So they're working for, you know, XYZ carrier. Yes. They're coming across opportunities that are outside the wheelhouse of the carrier that they're working for. They flip it over to Correct. an agent friend of theirs who will set them up as yep. a sub agent. And whether they're doing it, you know, despite the employment contract that they might have with, you know, the yeah. company that's that they're working with or not is you know it's another story for another time um yeah. when they have eventually leave they've got you know a couple thousand if not ten thousand plus in monthly recurring commissions coming whereas someone like you and me to yeah. be blunt we walked out into the abyss of the unknown and just said <laughs> screw it uh we got to start this from scratch right that's right yeah it was one of the problems because you know having been in channel for five or six years prior to showing up at the door, door, door of Tolaris, one of my commitments to Adam, the, the CEO and president, was that I would never do that and and kept my word. And I never, ever did side deals and, and then didn't walk out of that organization with any type of residual income at all. <laughs> all, all I had was the information I'd learned and uh, some, some ideas I thought were going to be successful. <clears throat> and so... You're right, though. You know, I still see that today. Um, and, you know, I, I always frowned upon it in the past. I think maybe partly because I was jealous, uh, but then partly because I, I thought it was a little bit, I, I just, I don't know, there, there's the ethics of it all, right, of, of committing to kind of something. And if you said you're not going to do it, then don't do it. But I, I also get, like, sometimes you need that jump off point. And, I, you know, I tell you, Sean, if, if I had done it, it would have been, way easier than than the way I did it just because even though I had money in the bank and stuff like that which you have to have to to go out and do something like this um if you don't have residual income already coming in it um it wasn't easy right even with money in the bank it still wasn't easy because money goes away and the residual income I think it's great about residual is that it just keeps coming especially if you maintain that base where cash in the bank eventually you can burn through it and you don't get any more unless you go out and earn it. <laughs> and so it's, um, yeah, it, it was it was a very painful experience. Um, in fact, you know, it, 
it was one of the things that I think was one of the, the things I learned the most um, in terms of like what I would say is a misconception about starting the business is I would go out and talk to partners, talk to different individuals who were starting their business and or, or thinking about it. And I remember kind of being in my role, talking to people and helping coach them through those ideas. My understanding was that it was going to be about a year. Um, kind of, you hear people call it the walk to the desert, where it's very dry and, and you're thirsty, hungry for money, things like that. Um, what I found in my own personal experience is, yeah, you, you'll you'll start having some cash flow at the end of year one, but it's a longer journey than year one, right? It's it's definitely like for me, I found it pushed into year two and then even beyond, where <laughs> I began to make any type of money that was really meaningful. That, that I could live on that where I began to pay a lot of bills with and, and then that I could show my family that money was going to stack and continue to keep growing. Um, it takes a while, but once it's built, it's also very hard to take it away. And that was one of the things I learned at Tolaris. And one of the reasons why I've stuck with this so long is because it is very hard to break down a residual income when you're getting your you know pieces of, of flow, cash flow from different businesses across hundreds of businesses or however many you've sold. So, you know, it's difficult to, to kill a business overnight. So it gives, gives a business owner with residual income time to retool if something goes wrong. First, in, in, in the world of, you know, it's the margin where, you know, I sold this, I made this much money. Well, that money will, again, kind of carry you so far where that residual income is, as long as you take care of that customer and you keep them, you keep getting paid. And so you have the ability to kind of make mistakes and retool. And um, so overall, I guess I, I just, I, I wasn't going to give up. Um, and I knew it was going to take a while. But once the money came, um, it, it, it gets easier as you begin to kind of knock off those bills. And I tell people today, I, I'm in a much different place today than I was when I started. So I have a long ways to go, but I feel like I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm stable and I'm not concerned about going out of business overnight. So related, one of the debates I routinely have with myself is would I be as successful now if I made that leap and already had some kind of, you know, safety net in place versus having my back up against the wall, you know, married with two kids at the time, uh, knowing that I had to execute to provide for my family um, and provide for myself and, you know, get back to the standard of living that, that I was used to. And we, we had savings and burned through every last piece of it. And I went out and actually even raised a little bit of debt financing um, just to get things started. What are your thoughts on there on that? Do you think, do you think you would have had that same drive and determination to grow and the froth no. that you had or yeah, definitely not. No, no, I, I don't, I, I don't think I would have. And, and the big reason why is that um, I wasn't as focused, you know, if I think back to my early days and if I didn't have some of those, you know, those, those drivers behind me that I have now, um, I don't know that I would have been successful because it does, it does take a lot of, focus and determination and um, it gets lonely, you know, because when, when you're working for large organizations, um, 
I mean, even even an organization with 30 people, that's 30 people to talk to. And when you start off in your own organization, and in me, I have a business partner. Um, and so I was able to start off my business partner. And so at least I had him, but there are a lot of individuals, I think like you, Sean, that, you know, you kind of started off on your own. And so it's it's tough, you know? And so if you don't have certain drivers, it's easy to want to give up because you get tired and it's hard. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I have small children, I've got a wife and I've got, you know, all the bills you could possibly think of like anybody else that, that you would have when you come out of a corporate job. And so the option to fail my mind isn't possible, right? I, I, I can't, I can't fail. And and so there's, I don't want to let my family down. And then there's also like, because I've grown up in the industry and because I feel like, and, and again, this is my own doing, I feel like eyes are on me from people I've met along the way that I think that, um, I think there are those out there that want me to fail because they just happy when people fail. And then I, I also, I just, I want to prove to people that I can make it. I, I can be different. That it wasn't just me working for an organization that kind of propped me up and put me where I was. is because I know what I'm doing and I understand the business. And I think the fact that I'm four and a half years into it kind of solidifies that much like much like you, right, in your business. So with that understanding, right, so let's take off the table. You know, I wish I would have had a, a stable base of, of money um, yep. to jump into, right? What? would you have done differently looking back, right? Yeah. What, what are maybe some, uh, uh, a couple things that you would have definitely done differently when you were I just would starting earlier? Out? Yeah, I tell you that, you know, you hear that all the time. Like, I wish I would start earlier. I, just, I do. You know, it's one of those things where I knew what I wanted to do and I kept putting it off, I kept putting it off because I didn't believe the timing was right. But it's like anything, you know, it, it, if my wife wouldn't have gotten pregnant, I might have put, kept put, putting kids off because I was, when's the timing right, right? It, it's one of those situations where um, the timing is never going to be perfect and there's always going to be reasons to give excuses why not to do something, especially when you're in a comfort and a good job. I, I, I enjoyed my job at Tillerus. I enjoyed my time there. It was, it was great. It was, it, was, uh, it was super fun. Um, and it was just, it was, it was great. But at the same time, there was this side of the business. And so if anything, I just, I wish I would have jumped off a little bit sooner because I would be that much further along in my business today. And that, that's the thing I tell people now is that, you know, if you, even if you work for an organization and you have a really good run, you're looking at five to 10 years of working there, maybe. And then at the end of that, that run, you're back to starting all the way over <laughs> first, just start your business. You have that same five or 10 run, five or 10 year run. It may start off a little slow, but you know, at the end of that ten-year run, you're ten years into your business, and it'll be a whole different world. And so that's that's I begin to look at it a little bit differently. Like I'm gonna have to feel some pain, and I'm gonna have to go through some, some difficult times in order to kind of get to the end goal of what I want, which is a little bit more of stability, a little bit more of um, my own the ability to make decisions because I own the business. So that's that's what I'm working towards. If anything, I wish I would have started earlier. Sure. And it's it's tough, as I'm sure you've had these exact same conversations with folks who are interested in making that move, yep. but they're always saying, "Well, I've got a really nice commission check coming at the end of the quarter, right?" Yeah. And then next right. quarter, "Well, I got I've got just got to wait for this next commission check." Well, I got to wait for the next commission check. <laughs> it's like you you will always if you're if you're even remotely decent at what you do, you will always yep. have that next commission check that you're you're going to be waiting for. Right. 
Um, yeah, it never it never gets easier. You know, and, and the thing is, that I found is that the older you get, the harder it gets because you're so set in your ways, and the more you're just that jump off point becomes harder, and it just that that jump becomes it looks further and longer and more dangerous. Um, and then you just get complacent, and then eventually, like I said, I think you just give up on your dreams. So what yeah. else? What else would you have done differently in the early days? Um. What would I have done differently? You know, I probably. Were there certain areas that you you put money that you look back and you're like, that was a waste, waste of time, waste of money. <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if I look back to where we were, you know, one of the things I would have done differently is I would have approached the. So if I go back to the the days at Polaris, one of the things I would have done differently is I would have approached the the VAR market quite a bit differently because that that particular market so if you think about distribution and how it works it's all based on partners selling through the distributor and um so you're you're always recruiting you're always looking for new partners you're always looking for an industry or a segment that has been untouched or untapped in terms of opportunities to bring new deals in through distribution and one of the things that we tried to do early on was really go heavy after the bar market um, all the guys that in businesses that are selling, you know, gear, Cisco and Avaya when it was in its heyday. And so we went and attacked that market quite hard and spent a lot of money. Um, and what's interesting is it's, it's still the market that I see all these distributions going after. And, and they're having a lot more success today than they did then, but I would have approached it a lot differently, um, knowing what I know now in terms of the conversations and kind of what what gets that group excited? But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, it just I didn't see all of the technology changes around cloud that are, that we see today. So it's easy to kind of look back and say I would I would definitely have approached that conversation differently because now I know what the message for that group should be and where you should focus instead of just with swap leads. So how about with someone who is brand new? Like you, you've got a friend who literally just started their own consulting. Yep practice their own agency what what advice would you give them ah, that's good um so what i this is what i see so today what i see especially from distribution and i keep going there because that's where a lot of the messaging comes from for for our community and for the channel entirely um i see a lot of distribution pushing the concept of many different products many different services learn them all and my advice to somebody new coming in would be Take the time to learn about them, but at the end of the day, focus, because if not, it'd be very easy to go five miles wide and one inch deep in product knowledge, which is just an expert of none, right? First, you can take the time and become an expert in a particular area. So much like what you've done, Sean, you, you own the data center space, in my opinion. I, I don't know many people that know the space as well as you. It was one of the things that <clears throat> I liked about you early on is that you own that space, you, you say, this is what I'm good at, and you, you do that today, and you, you take all the peripheral business around it as well. And, and so I, I've kind of done the same thing, which is why Exvergence has come out, because I see the opportunity around contact centers and UCAS become a big, big staple in my world is hosted phones. And I still do all the things I used to do, but it typically today starts with some sort of communication conversation about what a business is trying to accomplish. Um, but what, what it's allowed me to do is <laughs> I've begun to focus. So instead of trying to go in and say, I want to be an expert at data center or, or pretend to be, right? I lean on guys like you where I say, you know, this is my core. This is what I know. 
if these conversations and these topics come up, I'll go to them and I'll leverage this group. Um, and so I would say for new people coming in, figure out what products, what vertical and what business you're going to be good at and become really good at it, be an expert in it, and then find your team. Find the people that you can rely on who can fill in the gaps, who are as good at what they do as what you are, what you do. And if you have that, then when you show up and talk to a client, there's going to be little reason why they shouldn't work with you and your team because collectively, you know, you, you know everything. And, you know, this is the concept and idea, Sean, I think you and I got talking about five, six years ago, maybe longer, right? And, um, and I think it's proven itself out where, you know, whether people realize they do it or not, you know, I, I hear about these odds of people all the time. I mean, I work with you and I've worked with, you know, Todd and, and all those folks within your group before. And, and you guys are the people I go to if, if it's data center related, always. Yeah, I think that's a key, key point to make and a lesson that I've also learned and advice that I, I give people. In fact, just last week we were in Atlanta at another uh, ultimate partner training with Microcorp. Yep. And I kick it off. I kick off that whole um, training, letting people know that we're not here to make them experts in data center hosting, right. ECAS, contact center. It's it's simply an impossibility. Just as you know, you would not be able to impart on me, Rob, your decades of experience on the telecommunications side of the house and the relationships right. that you have and the um, the case studies that you've been directly involved with and a part of that help frame the conversation and add insight into how and why you're making certain recommendations or um, pulling certain people into certain projects, right? That's and so right. That's the, right. Uh, the general contractor. Yeah, I, mean, you know, I, I tell you. I was going to say the the general contractor analogy. I think is key because those who may be great at you know designing and executing on. Uh, a kitchen, let's say, for for yeah. a home. Um, that is a specialty, and there's lots of nuance within just building a epic kitchen for someone. That same person is not going to be ideal for installing the pool in the backyard, nope. or you know, re- redoing an attic or whatever it might be done within that right. specific project. But the other, you take it to another degree. If someone needs, let's say hundred kitchens done within a new skyscraper, residential skyscraper going up. Is that firm yep. going to be able to execute on that many jobs all at once? Probably not. It takes it takes okay. someone with a different skill set who knows how to scale that specific business and that specific model. So that's where you really can start to get people to realize that to your point about, you know, do you want to be an inch deep and a mile wide, or do you want to be a mile deep and an inch wide, but know all the other people who are also an inch deep and a mile wide that you can bring in as needed? Exactly. Yeah, and, and I would say, like, for that general contractor, that, that's an analogy that I, I've, I've been kind of hooked into for a long time, um, just because it makes the most sense when you begin to kind of think about what we're talking about. And, and the person or individual that, that I think of the most in that general contractor role is like a hybrid between a just a hardcore enterprise sales individual, somebody that really gets it, that's always out there selling, moving on in the next deal, but they need some project management because they've got to be able to manage the components, right? They got to manage all the specialty people that kind of move around. Um, <clears throat> but it, you know, but for all of us that, that kind of fit in these different roles, right? You just have to know where your role is. And I like getting 
directly involved with clients and solving problems and things like that. And so um, that's that's why I decided, like, for us, we're just going to go real deep particular topics. Number one, because the product is going to be for five years at a minimum, um, and there's so much growth around it, and there's going to be a lot of customer confusion in, in trying to figure out the, the hosting space. So it, it made the most sense to us. But for other people, you know, there are a few people out there that I think do make a good general contractor, but I think the majority of us in the space are probably best like being an expert at something instead of a master at none. Um, I think it's going to wind up hurting people at the end of the day. Well, you, you used, I think, the appropriate phrasing. You mentioned your team, right? So yep. Xvergence is a team of Rob, and you have yep. other partners in Lance, and you've got other partners yep. in Open Spectrum, but we're, at the end of the day, all part of your team. Right. So right. and the phrasing doesn't have to be, you know, I have this other firm, this outside consulting firm that I work with that might be a good fit, um, you know, to, to come in and speak to these specific topics. It's more, you know, I have, I have some other team members that are ideal fits that have deep experience in this space. You know, one would be a good time for us to connect and loop those people into the, into the project here. Right. Absolutely. I mean, cause I, I, my my the thing that I, I talk to a lot of customers about from time to time is if if we're going to be talking consulting, we're going to be trying to solve problems. If, if I have to Google the questions you're asking me, I'm probably not the right expert because you could Google the same thing and get the same answer. So, you know, that's when I I that's kind of my litmus test. If, if I feel like I'm going to have to go home and Google what they're asking about, I need to bring in an expert. I need to bring in somebody that really knows that space, that knows it as well as I know what I'm talking about where I don't have to look it up, where I am Google, where if, if somebody can't Google the answer, they call me and ask me about it, right? That, that's, that's the type of level of, of um, I think, expertise that customers are looking for today because they can, they can easily go online and find answers they're looking for, um, general answers. They want to know the things that they, that they don't know, that they can't see, that they haven't read. So I've got another fun question for you. Um, a lot of the different master agencies out there are routinely peeved when agents, uh, they find out that agents that they're working with are leveraging you know, a multitude of different master agents um, to clear their business through. Can you, you know, if, if someone who works for a master agency is listening right now uh, and yeah. or an agent is, you know, solely dedicated to working with one agency or, or master agency, you kind of walk through the logic as to why diversified uh, master agency portfolio could make sense or would make sense? Yeah. So, you know, you, you know, I think it's a great question. Um, I, you know, so from, from my standpoint, spending 10 years at Tolaris, I do write a lot of my business through them still today, but I also write a lot of business through two competitors that I competed heavily against while I was at Tolaris. And, um, and I do that and it, it's strategic. Number one, because in some cases, it's something as simple as somebody has a contract somebody else doesn't have, right? Um, in, in other cases, it's sometimes for, it can be money related. Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, that, that's an easy answer that people can get. These days, I don't, I don't really base my decisions on where business goes because of money. A lot of times it's more of what's good for the business, like where, where do I feel that my business is going to be best protected? Um, who has a better contract with the actual vendor I'm writing business with? Because, you know, that's, 
that's the name of my game. How can I protect the revenue that I create here so that it stays forever, even through mergers and acquisitions? So I, I'm very cautious and cognizant of what, what contracts are good and who's got good rates and, and, and fair, right? But then there's also, you know, something as simple as Sean is like, who's coming up with the ideas? The thing is, this is one thing I would tell partners if they're listening is that all these distributors are, are messaging and, and providing different value. They all kind of do things a little bit differently. They may seem alike on the outside, but if you take the time to listen and learn what they're about, <laughs> I pick up a lot of really good information from a couple of, um, the, of the other distributors besides Polaris. And in fact, those other distributors have fundamentally, they've reshaped my business. A couple, you know, one of them in particular was the reason why I started going you know, one mile wide and one inch deep because I heard their message. I hear what they were talking about. So it, it just... I think it, you mean an inch wide and a mile deep. Yeah, exactly. And so and what I realized is like, you know, that type of stuff is more important to me than uh, an extra point here and there, right? And so as I, as I told all of them, hey, you know what? That idea came from you. And so the business that comes from that idea that I'm acting on, that's all yours. And And actually what I'm noticing is systematically, um, it's happening more and more with these couple of distributors in particular that just the ideas and things I'm learning from them are really getting to kind of spark ideas in my head and things I'm not thinking about and helping me grow in new directions. As a result, I think I'm going to wind up giving those distributors more business than I have in the past because of their ideas. And um, so I, I would say that, you know, people should look around. They're all different. <laughs> um, they all have different value. You know, on the surface, they look the same, but don't people should not be so weighted by a, a, just a dollar just because you make a percent more here it's not a good enough reason to just do all your business there because they're all doing something differently and i just happened to pick these these three because i couldn't go anymore <laughs> because the thing about distribution is is that you know, whether you're on the distributor side or the partner side there's two parts of the business keeping your customers happy if you're on the agency side or this side of the business that I'm on, you're on. But then you also have to keep your distributors happy, right? How do you make sure that feeding those individuals money so that you become worthwhile so that if something pops up that you are not somebody that's unknown? That, you know, you want to make sure that if you need something, you've got some meaningful revenue through that distribution so you can get some help if you need it. And um, I think sometimes people miss that, that, you know, it, it's, it's more than just, it's, you know, and distributors do the same thing. Distributors have to take care of their agents and their partners, but they also have to take care of managed and vendor contracts. I think you've got some experience in that. And so it's, um, it, it really requires it's kind of a fine, delicate balance too of trying to maintain those contracts. But I, I highly recommend kind of exploring different distributors and seeing what's out there. Um, some have more of a family type of feel, and some feel much more very large and very corporate, but they, you know, they bring lot of different things to the table. So it's, it's worthwhile. I think people would be pretty amazed if they really kind of take the time to, to listen, explore, and, and open themselves up and, and, and try new things. I think you hit on, at least for me, one of the most important components there, which is not every distributor slash master agency um, has relationships with everybody. And if they do, they may be leveraging another contract um, through co-op partnerships that these firms have developed, the distributors have developed yep. with one another. Um, and so thinking 
thinking that any one of them is a one-stop shop for anything and everything you could ever possibly need in the space that we live in, I think is uh, as much as they may not want to admit to it. It's just not, not an accurate way to view the industry. Um, yeah. So you, you just have and to your point, it I kind of view it like hardware VARs, right? Which mm-hmm. I know you've had some experience with. Yep. All yep. of them say that they can rep, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them say that they can rep, you know, Dell, HP, Supermicro, Cisco, Juniper, you know, you name it. And all the, the new firms that are coming out that have interesting chassis and whatnot. But the reality is, if you look at where the revenue is coming from, right. they may be 75% HP. And they may do right. some Dell and some Supermicro and some Cisco and some EMC right. and whatnot. Um, it's the same with a lot of these distributors and agencies. You look at where the bulk of their money is going, and it's only you know maybe a half a dozen to a dozen different carriers where they're getting the bulk of their revenues. Uh, say the the majority of the revenues only comes from half a dozen to a dozen of these carriers. So the rest of them are kind of a me too type of contract where another distributor may get the bulk of their the revenue from one of those service providers that is in a minority with another firm and just, you know, basic laws of economics indicate that the company that's pushing the most business to them is going to get the most attention, um, yep. which is a perfect carryover to the next question I have, which is some people don't fully understand the value proposition of a consultant slash broker, um, at, you know, like you and me and the thousands of others who, who do what we do. Could you try to explain for those who are listening exactly why it is that a individual company, uh, you know, you're an IT service buyer or a CTO, CIO, or director of IT working for a company, why the hell would you want to work with someone like us versus just go direct to the carriers and go direct to the service providers yourself? Yeah, you know, I, I'd say the thing that I've come to over the years trying to think about that question, Sean, it's as simple as just experience. You know, when it comes down to the buying of selling things, it's even like having children. I feel like I'm an expert at having kids, right? But the reality is I've only done it twice, kids. So am I really an expert at it? And so you think about the world of IT and folks that are responsible for, for buying decisions inside of organizations. The reality is how many times in their career have they actually transitioned through different technology, maybe once or twice, depending on where they were in their career and what they were involved in, whether it's, you know, like this, Sean, how many times have people been responsible for ripping out all the infrastructure from their corporate office and putting in a data center? They might have done that once or twice. I suspect that you do that once or twice a week. (laughs) So, you know, when you think about that and you collectively put that together on, you know, over the course of 10 years, Right, and, and, and the experience that you bring to the table, the gotchas you can you can help coach people to get around the issues that can possibly pop up, contract language that customers can enter into, vendors that look great on the outside, but really if you dig in behind them, they're horrible at doing business with. Um, those are things that customers, as hard as they try, they're never going to get if they don't work with somebody like us that understands the space, that gets it, because. They won't have the opportunity because their experience level is low. And no matter how much research they do and how much competitive information they try and gather, clients will never have the same level of experience as somebody like you and me doing what we do and what we're really good at because it's what we do all day. It's, it's, it's our bread and butter. 
And so that, that's just what I look at. It just it comes down to experience. It just depends on, you know, what people are trying to accomplish and if they feel like they've done it enough times where they, they got it. But I often find that even, even customers that feel like they're the most savvy, they still make mistakes. Um, and they miss stuff because they just didn't know about it. <laughs> and uh, I, know, I know you see that stuff all the time. Yeah, the, uh, I think one of the keys, I mean, you hit all the major topics there and great, great points. The one that always resonates for me is you can look at the numbers on a spreadsheet, but until you're working with someone who's actually played through scenarios with those numbers right. and with those providers, you get a completely right. different picture, right? So if it's it's almost the same conversation I have with <laughs> with some of the private equity folks that I know um, and just financial engineering folks that I know where things might look good on paper, they might make sense on paper. But when you look into the actual tangible reality of how some of these things are going to play out, it can be yep. very different than what you're forecasting and expecting Absolutely. because of just pure um, common common sense reality that people don't know about until they're in the world experiencing things. Yep. Yeah. It, not everything is, as it seems as, as, as with most things in life, right. It, um, there, there's the way that people perceive it and there's the way that it actually is. Sometimes those things are quite a bit different just based on, you know, promises because, you know, I mean, salespeople are salespeople. They're going to go out in the market and marketing people have one job, market and get the message out. The salespeople have one job, get out there and sell the product and move on. And so the experiences that customers have with that, that, that buying method um, can sometimes vary depending on who they're dealing with and what companies they're, they're talking to, you know, cause the things that aren't messaged, you know, I, I find is what's the company culture like, you know, like, are, are, you know, are they strapped for money or have they been struggling? What is their customer support look like for the last year? Those are things you're not going to really read about. You're not going to get a good, feel for that looking on Yelp, right? Trying to get a handle on how good this provider is based on a Yelp review. Um, that just comes from the fact of like having to go through experiences with customers where maybe an issue just popped up and figuring out how quickly has that vendor responded to solve that problem. Um, those are things that are super important to clients, right? Because things are going to come up, but it's, you know, if they do pop up, how quickly can the, can the issue get resolved? And and we, we we come to an agreement to to get this fixed. Yeah, I, you know I've got a tangible case study that's playing out right now, where I was working with a client for the better part of two years to do a multi-site deployment, um, about three hundred to four hundred kW in in three different locations. Yep. They ended up choosing one of the large uh, public data center owner operators to deploy in, primarily because um, of the they felt that by making a decision to move with such a brand name, they wouldn't be at risk of, um, you know, losing their job. Um, and, you know, the salespeople did a good job of, of selling all the bells and whistles that the company could theoretically bring to the table. My reticence moving forward with that company was the fact that they were not a hyperscaler organization, right? Which is what I know these large data center companies are going after. They want the the next Amazon contract that's going to feed them 10, 20, 30 megawatts. Um, and what's happening is a lot of these smaller clients of theirs who are small relative to them, but not small relative to some of the other players who are co-location providers hungry for those types of deals. Um, they would lose attention to the large firms. 
And they said that that was a risk that they were willing to take. And here we are nine months into a deployment and everything is behind schedule because all the attention and focus is on the bigger clients that they have. It's not on the smaller yep. client. Um, and I have to continually bite my tongue and not say, I told you so, and try to just work, work through the process <laughs> and hope that they've, you know, learned something through this process so that next time they'll hopefully take things a little bit more seriously um, when I'm talking through it. But it's, it's those types of realities that I think um, companies should be more aware of, right? It's how this is actually going to play out long run and what issues and concerns could be brought up. And that's, from my perspective, that's the value that we can bring to the table. But, you know, to the case study here, some clients care and some clients would continue to want to go down their path regardless of, of the advice oh, and counsel I, that we I, may I, give. <laughs> I, well, and I see it all the time, right? Some people, they show up with certain brands in mind and you, you warn them and say, this is the deal. You know, in, in, in some cases I have walked, I have walked from some clients and said, hey, I can't support that because it's going to be a disaster. And, and if run into it, then let me know. And if it goes well, I wish you the best and just have to walk from it. But in other cases, you know, I realized that, you know, no vendor and provider is perfect. And so part of our job is to kind of clean up that mess. But, um, you know, I, I find that if nothing else in your particular example, it just gives you more more reason and more, it should give customers more reason why they should want to work with with folks like you and me. The biggest thing I find is just getting people to trust that that we're going to lead them in a good direction and, and get them to understand that at the end of the day, we truly are on their side, right? It's not, none of us, I think the majority of us in our industry and channel are not out just to make a quick sale and burn people and move on. We all enjoy working with customers. And, and the thing that's different about us that I find versus anybody on the direct sales side is the uh, the, the long-term creature is a habit that we are in terms of keeping up with our customers. You know, we want long-term relationships um, with customers, and, and it's not. I'm never in it for the quick sale to get out. You know, we're, I'm in it for the long relationship for years to come because it's the business that I'm in. It's how we get paid. Yeah, and, I was going to um, say. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it goes straight to how we're compensated, right? Exactly. So the right. the one-time commission that a, a direct sales rep is going to get paid encourages more transactions, but the long tail commission encourages a long-term relationship because That's right. if a client's not happy and they say, why the hell did you, you know, coach us through this decision and, and put us right. into this provider that sucks, that isn't delivering, they're not going to want to work with us again. And we're going to, we're going to exactly. lose that. Exactly. And, it, it, and all of us work really hard to get those clients. So, you know, we, we, you know, any of us that are good at what we do, we want to hang on to them for as long as we can, because again, it's, it's how we're compensated. You know, the, the, when I was on the distribution side, I remember looking at numbers that show that average customers and clients would stick with the typical channel partner somewhere between six and seven years. It's, it's not longer. And that's Sean, that's when channel partners didn't do anything. We would watch partners come in, be successful Things happen, business would go away, they would leave, but they still had this residual income stream coming in, of which nobody was watching that base of revenue, right? These were just customers that were sold, and they, the, the partner that sold the original circuit or deal, whatever it was, is no longer around. Um, even in those situations, those customers would still stay with that, that 
person that brought them to the carrier, somewhere between six and seven years. It was, it was quite amazing, which is when you think about that, you know, it just it takes so long to kind of take down that type of revenue stream, which is, I think, why it's so great. But it also, like with anything, you know, it takes a long time to build. You're not going to build that overnight, you know, especially you can get lucky and, and get a large deal that you close and maybe it generates a lot of money, but, you know, you can also lose it, right? But when you've got a lot of money coming in spread across a lot of different clients, organization, the only the, the biggest problem you have is the contracts that you've sold through. Are they reliable? Are these distributors going to stay in business? Are the carriers going to continue paying? Because as long as they do, you're going to be in business for a long time. That's that's yeah. also goes back to the point we were making about why you choose specific master agents. Yeah. Um, there, there have been circumstances where service providers have basically just given the finger to their agent program and said, yep. so sue us if you want to continue to get paid. And the individual mom and pops who may have had a direct agreement doesn't have the time yep. and money to go fight, fight the provider to go get paid. But the master agent who has, who's clearing a significant amount of money is going to take the time sure that they go get paid and spend. Well, the yeah. Money. I mean, and, that, and I think that's a huge deal because a lot of people don't think about that. Right. Because, you know, the vendors, the providers, all of them have legal folks on staff or, or nearby that are on retainers. They're already paying for lawyers, I assure you. Distributors today, most of them have the same thing. They've got lawyers they're already paying. Most of us in this business don't have lawyers just on staff hanging out ready to fight some, some, some big key. And so it ends up happening in that model. And I saw it, I don't know how many times during the distribution side of my career, um, where, you know, things would change that the, the partner felt like they had a great relationship with a particular channel chief or the company because they knew the owners. But what always happens is people come and people go, business models change. And unless you have the contract that says it has language in it that you want to protect yourself, you can lose that revenue stream. And the thing about it is, is that you can burn more money chasing your, your residual stream than, you know, in lawyer fees than you actually have total coming to you. So it becomes a very hard proposition to go chase residual income when you'll, it'll cost you more to get it than, than you actually are owed. And so, and, and these providers, they know it. And so, you know, they're, most of them are good, but, you know, if the, if the wind changes and something happens in the industry, they're, they're going to protect themselves. And you can look around time and time again when it's all said and done and that axe comes swinging, big distributors, all of them, the microcorps, the Tolaris, the guys, the Sandlers, the Intellisys, 99.99999% of the time, they don't get messed with. But it is not out of the realm of possibility for me to hear that, oh, this provider just cut agent contracts you know, by the hundreds. 500 agent contracts were cut, which means that 500 residual streams just got cut off. And when that happens, unless you have a good story to tell about why the, they should let you migrate your money, it's gone. And you can wake up and just lose your money. And I, I remember there have been some instances during some, some M&A, even in the data center space, where there were some folks that lost significant chunks of revenue overnight because of an M&A. You know, just woke up and the, the buying company said, we're not going to honor that channel program. And their, their income stream just vaporized overnight. And that's the stuff you always have to watch out for on the channel side and residual revenue is, you know, again, back to that, is your money protected? Is it safe? You know, you can't always just chase the extra point 
in an effort to make an extra dollar really comes down to where is your money going to be best protected? Which bank is going to give you the, the opportunity to kind of keep getting that money, if, even if all things go bad? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, but, it, you know, learned some very valuable lessons in the process. Yeah. Uh, you know, Most there's people some do. Amazing work on the channel side for, for these companies. But the reality yeah. is they don't. They don't call the shots at the end of the day. They roll up to an EVP of sales or a CFO or a CEO. Right. And to your point, if there's a merger or acquisition or or board, right? Um, Yep. So sometimes decisions that are made that are not the best interest of the channel that brought in income stream. Yeah. And I mean, and people forget, I mean, right now we're, we're back in the heyday of all the big left telecoms. So the Verizon, AT&T's and, and everybody, even ATP is coming out with a residual channel program now this year. You know, if you it, for those that have been doing this long enough, you can remember that all of them had programs like this before. Verizon cut everyone off in the channel more than once. Okay, so, and yet I watch all these agents drop enormous dollars and big deals into Verizon, and they're making great money with Verizon. And, and it might be different this time, but Johnny. It's one of those things where, you know, you can look to the past to kind of determine the future sometimes. And, you know, it's like with anything, I suspect that if Verizon wakes up one day and figures out that the channel program is not as profitable as they want it to be, will they just cut people off? What would stop them from doing it again? They've done it once, right? So, and I'm not picking on Verizon because they just, they're the ones that kind of stick out in my mind. Um, all of them have gone through, I mean, I it, you know, just the number of vendors that are out there that have gone through that at some point, always during some M&A, um, is just, it's mind-boggling. And, and just, again, I happen to know all that stuff so well because I was on distribution. And so, you know, there are a lot of times that things popped up where you hear things, you saw things, and, and they were things that were not publicized. They were, they were things that were going on with vendors that people didn't know about. They didn't realize how close their commitments were to getting cut off. And so, you know, that's the role of the distribution is to make sure that they've got great relationships with their providers and that they are always looking out for the best interest of their, their partners downstream who are selling the business, especially when you're dealing with residual income. Because at the end of the day, the distributors do distribute technology. That's part of their business, but they're also a big bank. I mean, they have an enormous amount of revenue that comes in every single month that they're responsible for distributing all of their partners, millions of dollars. Yeah, that's and, one of the key um, things. The back, so office, back yeah. office component is overlooked. I mean, in God's honest truth, it was overlooked by me when I first started. I was like, oh, what oh. do I need a master for? And it took right. me years of growing that base and realizing the logistical nightmare it was to manage yep. that business and those, those revenue streams where I just finally said, you know what? It might actually be worth it for me to to bring them in oh. and them take care of that piece. Just, just in the money you'll get back. I mean, what most partners don't realize is that you know the these providers they make mistakes. Much like if you've ever worked for a provider directly, and I did, right? So I was on the provider side for a long time. Well, in sales, and anybody that's been in sales working for for some organization, you know, you always check your commissions because you're always going to find occasionally the mistake that you were mispaid we're paid and it's never too much. We're always weren't paid for something. And that same thing continues to happen in the channel side as a channel partner. So distribution, they do as good a job as they can 
kind of watching your money, but you also have to put an extra layer of watching your money in there because they're only going to catch so much. But if you didn't have distribution there to catch it, the likelihood of you missing stuff is significant. People don't realize how often that they're incorrectly paid or they're not paid a particular bonus or stiff of some kind that's due, or maybe they're paid the wrong commission amount because this got keyed in incorrectly. And, um, and again, it's, it's a very difficult thing to try and to do all that. And that's some of the role of what distribution kind of brings to the table because, you know, they, they've got 20, 30, 40, 50 people on staff to just sit around and check commissions all day, every day, what they do. <laughs> and, and, you know, you let them go fight the commission because typically if you're having that problem, there's typically more people that are having that problem as well. And so it's a bigger issue. So you let distribution go and fight that fight in, in the good cause and then collect your money for you and bring it back. You know, sometimes people want to kind of get in there and take on that role themselves. But I often find it's, you know, you got to let distribution kind of do what they're there to do, which is kind of shield you from the minutia of the vendor's junk. So related to that, I had a brief conversation with um, someone who's looking at, you know, they, they realize that there's opportunity that they're probably missing out on. It's a, uh, data center managed service provider, outsourced IT service provider that said, oh, well, we're going to get into the indirect channel and we're going to build a channel program. And I was like, great. So what what are you going to invest into that? Or they're like, well, we'll just get a contract. Can you just send over a contract and we'll sign up a bunch of um, you know, real estate brokers and, and some other people? I'm like, okay, so what, what other resources are you going to put behind this? Because it's not as simple as saying, oh, we have an indirect channel now because we have an agreement there's time and resources that are, need to be put in place so that people like you and me are comfortable um, with that firm actually staying on top of on top of their shit and, and making sure yep. that people are actually getting paid what they're supposed to get paid, getting paid on time, um, and that they know how to engage and work in that universe. And I, it's, it's still it's just interesting to me how uh, immature a lot of these service providers tend to be and that they think it's a super simple and easy game that they can get into uh, oh, yeah. just by having an agreement. You, you see that, you see that a lot, you know, that that's when, you know, a channel program is really immature. And those are the ones you need to watch out for because sometimes, you know, and it, and, and being in channel right now is super popular, right? You see everybody coming in and wanting to do channel. We're going all channel. You see that constantly from different vendors because that's the way the market's, Kind of swing, and that's what people are doing today. But the thing, the things around, the thing around just actually jumping in and um, I lost my train of thought there for a second, Sean. Um, right, man. I, I think the the point I, I drove home the point that uh, yeah. it's it's a much more complicated game. You have to have all the pieces of the puzzle together. You need to have someone who's dedicated to managing the relationships with those agents. You also need to make sure that you have the back office taken care of yeah. to pay people what they're supposed to be paid and make sure that you're actually tracking that accordingly. And that's that's another yeah. component where that that component took the data center providers probably seven years, even the established ones, just to figure yeah. out how to do something as simple as like an ACH payment, um, yeah. which is just mind-boggling to me. Uh, but right it's... Out. The accounting piece of it is overlooked, and it's one of the most critical components. 
Um, well, and I, you know, one of the other things that I find is overlooked quite a bit is the, the amount of time that it takes because you'll see these new operators, data center or service provider, cloud provider step in, right? And they will come into the marketplace with a product and they will say, to your point, here's a contract, here's access to my product, sell a zillion dollars for me. And they expect it to happen overnight without realizing that your point, it takes a lot more than a contract to generate that because unless you have product that has an enormous amount of pent-up demand around it, you're not going to get the push around your product that you think you will. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, here's a, a kind of a good example. So during my tenure at Solaris and, and kind of watching you know, 100 plus, maybe more service providers of different types come on and come through Tolaris. Um, all of them took an enormous amount of work from both parties, both the vendor and Tolaris, to try and get activity in motion and partners to pay attention. You know, and it, it was not out of their own possibility for stuff to take six months to a year at a minimum. In some cases, it took longer to build kind of like that energy around a product. However, <laughs> here's a good example about what I mean where it's different, but it's so rare, is a company like Comcast. Comcast had a product, coax and fiber, and just their big network. And when they came onto the marketplace, still to this day, I'm not aware of any other provider ever that stepped into the channel that on day one just took off like a rocket ship with just a simple fact of a contract. And the reason why is because there was so much pent-up demand. People wanted to sell it. They were always around it. They had to have access to it. They were missing out on money because of not having it. And unless you've got that type of activity and motion around what you're doing, you'll never see that type of rocket ship take off. It's going to take a lot of, you know, mindshare type of events. It's going to take a lot of, like, getting closer to distribution. It's going to take a lot of getting distribution to point their guns at you and pay attention to you. Because there's an enormous amount of noise in the channel that continually comes through. I mean, I've had to put so many filters on my, my mail programs to filter out the amount of junk that I get from service providers on a daily basis that, you know, I miss stuff because there's so much noise coming through that you miss the good stuff. And so, you know, that's, that's why I think a lot of times for new providers and new organizations that come in and say they want to play in the channel, I think a lot of times they come in with the misperception that they're going to come out of the gate and just kill it and crush it. And then they're, they don't understand six months into it. Why is nobody paying attention to them? They don't stop and think that, that, that they're one of many people that do what they do and their product is not that special. Um, it's just another, just another product, right? And so unless you've got something that's got a ton of pent-up demand behind it, it's going to take a while. Just channel does. But the thing about channel that's great that I've always loved about it is once you build an engine, <laughs> once, once channel's working, once people are selling and you've got an engine of revenue created through channel, as long as you don't screw that up by not paying people or by providing bad service, that's an engine that will just run forever and continue to grow if you nurture it and take care of it and do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and that's why so many providers and boards and C-level people, they love channel because it's a very profitable venture that is such a good business to be in. It just, you have to be willing to put a lot of investment and time and energy into it. And it's more than putting a contract out there and grabbing some person that was on the direct sales side and saying, hey, you're now in charge of channel. 
it it takes more than that if you want to do it right. Yeah, and there's uh, I think one of the interesting pieces is it's a different personality that you have to deal with, right? So the the successful inside salesperson or the successful yep. hunter for a technology firm is a little bit different breed than your typical agent or your typical IT services consultant. Um, And so you effectively have to hire the right person to manage a team of, uh, you know, insane entrepreneurs (laughs) who who are out hustling every single day and don't want to take orders from anybody. Right. Um, That's right. So that that's that's also the piece where they think that they can just take a some service providers think that they can just take a, a successful salesperson and just have them go manage the channel and they don't realize that there's such a diverse um yep. group of personalities those who are super humble yep. who are very loyal and those who to the point we were making earlier just will go to wherever they can need to go to make the largest rip that they possibly can on a deal. Um, yep, that's right. That's right. All right. So I think we've we've covered a lot of interesting topics here, and I'm super, yeah. super stoked to to push this thing out into the, the world at large and let everybody yeah. who's listening kind of digest everything that we spoke about. There's some specific people I know that I'm going to send this to and say, hey, you need to listen to this uh, conversation because I think we've just shed a lot of light on what's the world that we live in, the, the context mm-hmm. that I think have in mind when they're entering and working in this space. Um, but real quick, before I dig into some rapid fire questions with you, Rob, what, what is yeah. CompTIA? I know you've spent a long time and a lot of time working with mm-hmm. CompTIA. Who are they? What do they do? And why have you decided to invest so much time uh, with them over the years? Sure. So CompTIA is a, it's, it's one of the largest IT kind of supported associations that are out there. They are a $60 million IT association. And what they do is they try and push, their agenda historically has been to push channel um, IT and just prosper and, and just make it a better place to be, right? So by adding certifications. So at the end of the day, a lot of people, what they don't know is CompTIA, they are the owners and creators of A-plus certification and a lot of the other networking certifications that are used within the government environment. They do an enormous amount of good. They give out thousands of dollars every year to different types of groups, everything from um, code girls to uh, um, different types of veteran organizations. So they really are one of these organizations to get out there and try and make the IT and technology channel a much better place. I got started with CompTIA right about five, maybe six years ago. Goodness, it might even be longer now. Um, because they were, they were, they're always trying to figure out what other channel, what other technology is kind of coming on, where else can they benefit and who else can they help within technology. And what, when I got involved with them is they took a look at the telecommunication channel and, or just sector entirely and said, wow, here's the wild, wild west in technology for sure. Because here's a large group of people that are going to market and selling and working without any certifications at all. And so I worked with CompTIA and we tried to create certifications and it's been done before in the past, but at the end of the day, it's just an industry that really doesn't and doesn't appear to ever have any type of real certifications that carry any weight like you would find on the IT side of the house. And so as, as time has gone on, that telecommunication um, 
group within CompTIA, their board, it, it, it basically just kind of collapsed down and we folded into a partner advisory board. And so I ended up sitting with a lot of different um, solution providers, um, some very large solution providers down to small solution providers um, on a board in which we would kind of talk to CompTIA about the future of IT, where it's going, what it's doing, how they can help, where we can spend some time. Um, so, you know, they'll, they'll send people to Washington to do um, lobbying on behalf of IT. We, they'll, they'll, they'll inject a bunch of money into school systems to help children become better Internet ambassadors to understand what the Internet is going to do and how it can impact their world. And so, you know, those are the different types of projects that we get involved in and work. That, that board, actually, that I was involved in with CompTIA, that has recently changed. And now we've kind of collapsed. And what's happened is several boards within CompTIA combined into one. And so today I'm on a board now with um, several distributors like Ingram Micro and Arrow and Tech Data. They've got representatives that are on the same board. So we've got partners, we've got vendors, and we have distribution that are represented in a small ecosystem within CompTIA in which we're collectively providing our ideas and input about where technology is going and what it's doing and how it's going to impact IT. And so you know, CompTIA is now, I mean, they're looking heavily at drone and robotics right now because they see it's the wild, wild west there where there's no certifications. And so they're going to come in and try and reshape that world and, and try and put a little order to it. <clears throat> they're, they're just a great group of people that provides an enormous amount of resources. Um, I highly recommend, recommend people join because, you know, a lot of the information you're going to get from CompTIA is five and eight years down the road, and it's hard to apply some of that stuff to your business. But as a business owner, you would be foolish not to at least take the time to look, listen, and read at what they're putting out because they are telling you what's coming. <laughs> you, you, can, you may want to fundamentally disagree, but they've got a lot of money and a lot of research and a lot of input from all different sectors of, of the IT industry, you know, from large distribution down to the smallest of small MSPs. And so they're hearing all this information from their, their members and they're able to kind of see what's coming and where what people are doing. And so it, it can help drive, you know, businesses about what, what direction they need to go and maybe what they need to stay out of. Um, so just, just a wonderful group of people that I, I've enjoyed being a part of that group for a number of years now. Beautiful. Appreciate you, uh, you educating us on CompTIA. Um, yeah. How, how, for those who are listening, should someone get involved with that organization or, or can someone get involved? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's available for anybody. Um, so it's a very small nominal fee. Um, you know, for the average business, it'll be a couple hundred dollars, if that, for the year. And the amount of resources that you can take advantage with that that um, association membership fee is unbelievable. Everything from they've got lawyers on staff that you can utilize. They've got documents you can utilize. They've got case studies and and um, and more about that information you could utilize. They do several events um, throughout the year where you can come in. In fact, historically, they've, they've put on an event um, uh, in the summer where they do a big member meeting. It's not the annual member meeting, but it's the CompTIA show that they do in the summer. And um, that has actually provided me with some of the best education. I, I got involved with CompTIA early on at, when I was kind of probably halfway through Tolaris. And I got Tolaris a membership within CompTIA. That's how I actually got involved with them early on. And um, with that membership, I was able to bring out trainers. So 
because I paid CompTIA small nominal money as a business, a large business organization to be a distributor within um, CompTIA's world, I was able to then on CompTIA's dime and time able to bring out any of their, their teachers. And so I was able to have you know, different types of individuals fly into Salt Lake, into the Tolaris office and train Tolaris staff on different certifications. And so at one point, the last one we did was executive management and channel certification in which it was a three-day class, eight hours a day, in which they kind of went over and taught all the folks at Tolaris, here's what channel is all about, right? And so they took you from the beginning of what channel management functions are and what you're supposed to do all the way into how to run complex business plans and help business owners figure out finances within their business. A lot of that doesn't go on today within our channel, but it was it's broad enough that it it can apply to many different channels. And it's one of their most popular certifications is the uh, executive channel management certification. And so, um, again, just, just a great group. And I tell you, it, it's I can't say enough things. I, I've certainly got the money that I put into it out of it, for sure. Beautiful. Um, all right. So one question I meant to ask you that I forgot was before we started digging into the the world that we live in on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. is what is the most influential piece of advice you received when you first got started in your professional career? Sure. Um, so I would, I thought about that question a bit and um, you know, because I, I've, I've been in channel so long, I, I do, there are a few things that I remember hearing from a gentleman at new edge, always be recruiting, never stop looking for partners because partners come and partners go. Again, if you're in channel, it's kind of, you know, you just always have to be looking for new partners. Um, And also, um, you know, if you are in channel and you're not excited about what's happening today, you can't think about what you did or didn't do three weeks ago. It's typically I what I've found in my experience has been is, you know, channel result, channel MRC, channel numbers are a result of what happened six months ago because you got to you got to go out there and kind of, you know, put the seeds in and plow the field and do all the work. Eventually all that stuff you put out there grows and it prospers and brings money in. But it's, you, you can't, you can't wake up one day and all of a sudden force channel revenue to come through it back to our point. It takes a while. So you have to be willing to, uh, to, to kind of wear with all that, that, uh, that time. Um, and the last thing is, you know, from an influential piece of advice that still to this day, I, I have never forgot Sean is that a gentleman told me if it ain't red, it ain't said. So his, which was his way of saying, be very cautious and careful about what you put in writing, because what you put in writing you can't take back. And so, still to this day, what I put in writing, I'm always really trying to think through. Like, is this something I would want the world to read and see? And if I, if the answer is no, then I typically pick up the phone and call somebody and have that conversation. Because again, just cover your bases. Yeah, that's a great. Great, great lesson, and another lesson I've learned the hard way, especially yep. with uh, with conversations I've had with my parents over the year. <laughs> over the oh, years, I've I've written and deleted so many, so many long novels that I was going to send off to my mom and dad over the years. But uh, I love them both. Yep. Love you, mom. Love you, dad. But uh, <laughs> definitely learned that lesson. That was good. That was a good one. Um, yeah. All right. So, what was the first data center that you ever remember walking into? Sure. Uh, that was definitely Exodus in Austin, I, it, and I will never forget it. And it, it, and I don't know. I've never actually talked to anybody about this, 
But um, I, I actually, like, I still love the data center. Like, there's something about walking into a data center and hearing that hum, that little, that buzz, you know, all the things moving and the air moving around and all this stuff happening. There's just, there's something about that that I like. It's almost, I, I find it as tranquil as when I'm on top of a mountain and it's just me and I'm sitting there and I can hear all the wind blowing through the trees. Um, it just, it, it does something for me. And so I, I, I vividly remember walking into that facility and just hearing that buzz and realizing like I felt like I was in the heart of everything as far as the heart of technology. This is where it all is, right? People think of the internet, but I felt like I was in the internet when I walked into Exodus. Amen. Hallelujah. You're, you're speaking my language. It's uh, <laughs> yep. a lot of people tell me, Sean, with all the data centers you've walked through, aren't, don't they all just blend together and look the same? And the reality is that they don't. And I still, I still love going on tours and looking at how people are, are architecting and delivering the services inside that facility and the nuance and, you know, looking at the floors of the data center and seeing how clean they are or uh, right. just meeting the staff and asking some simple questions and really learning a lot about the culture of the company just by asking some, some basic questions and seeing how they, how they act and react within the first nanoseconds of, of me asking those yep. questions. It's uh well, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a business that is so focused on operations. And what I've learned over the years is, the better their operations are, the better the facility, the less likelihood of them going down or having problems. And, and maybe I've misinterpreted that, but I, you know, some of that I've learned from you, right, is that, you know, a lot of these guys come from a military background where they were in charge of, you know, maybe a, a submarine or some other type of thing where they, they had everything mapped down to if, then, what, and this is what's going to happen. And it's fascinating to find that same thing happening inside these large data centers and what they're able to accomplish because of it. Yeah. And not just that, but the understanding that practice makes perfect. And that yep. if there if there's an outage of any kind, if they've been through the practice of dealing with it dozens of times, it's not as freaky. It's not as scary. Uh, they just go right. through the process of dealing with it and take care of it without, you know, getting emotionally irate or, or out of control, which is, that's, right. that's a trait yeah, that you, very you few can... people who haven't been in the military have actually had to experience in their life, right? Well, that's, that's the thing I was going to say is that unless, you know, you, you, there's, you can sit around and pretend all you want, but unless you've actually gone through it there, you know, it, it's, it's practice makes perfect. You're right. Because you, you have to know what you're going to do. You can't think about what you're going to do. You just have to, it just has to be a natural reaction because you've trained and you know, like, okay, we're down. This is what I do instead of like, because the natural reaction, I think, for an individual that hasn't gone through that training, that hasn't practiced, whether it's a data center or anything, is the first inclination is to freak out. <laughs> and then and it is so hard to get your composure back after the freak out happens because, you know, you're, 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 you're not sure that everything that you, you know, basically you begin to question everything, right? Is this really going to work? Instead of just doing it because you know it's going to work and you know this is the right process, and that's that's the difference between the winners and the losers, I think. Yeah, and that that's also the case not just within the data center, but any production oh. equipment or operation that's supporting a business. If if the team that's supporting that production environment hasn't actually gone through the process of a failover or any kind of disaster recovery uh, scenario, they're going to be freaking out, and the chances of them succeeding to recover is much lower than those who make it a general practice of, uh, right. of going through that process. But, um, 
Mr. Butler, I love you, my friend. I have two other questions for you. How can people contact you if they want to get a hold of you? Sure. If you want to get a hold of me, the easiest thing to do is just give me a call. Um, would you like me to give my phone number? Hey, if you want a bunch of people calling you to uh, talk to you about <laughs> all kinds of things, about you know why Austin Here. kicks ass and yeah, how to go on I, some kick-ass hella ski trips in Colorado. I mean, Figure it out, exactly. So yeah, my, my phone number is 512-322-9664. Best way to get a hold of me. Um, and uh, I think that's a good place to start. You're on LinkedIn too, right? Oh, definitely. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, very visible on LinkedIn. It's R-O-B-B-U-T-L-E-R. Another thing that I th- is coming up, are you going to Channel Partners this year? I am not. So this is going to be the first time in probably, Sean, I bet it's been a decade <laughs> since I haven't gone. Um, and mainly just because, um, you know, I, I love it, but I, I've reached a point in my career where I'm not learning much from the event at all. And so it, I love going there. And so the last couple of years, it's really been more about me going and enjoying time with my friends in the industry, friends in the business, and just spending good time with them because we're all over the country. And I wouldn't take that away for anything in the world. In fact, it's the best part of my job, right? The best part of what I do is being able to do things like that. But this year in particular, I just made more of a focus and decision on if I'm going to travel, I want it to be because I'm, I'm learning more about something that, you know, basically my expertise, right? And, and, and that show in particular is so general in topic where the panels go on for 45 minutes and they've got seven people up there. And so you get three minutes from each person. And at the end of the day, you learn nothing. <laughs> so it, um, and for me, it's like, I'm just not there. You know, I, I know enough topically about all the vendors that what I need now is I need deeper dives. I'd rather spend three days on one particular topic, like at your event, right? Like I'd rather go to your data center training and go do channel partners, at least for this year, right? Um, because I find more value in that. <laughs> um, Vegas is just a good time for me to go go see the people I, I really enjoy in the business. Yep. Yeah, last year was the first year I didn't go in about eight years. And I'm actually yep. going to be coming back this year because we have some exciting announcements to make to the industry. Nice. Um, yeah. Which we'll, we'll announce once, once it's all signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, and the last question I have for you is, do you love data centers? I do love data centers. Do you do you speak any other languages other than English? You know, I'm no. I will say no because my family is fluent in Spanish, and I am not. I know enough Spanish to get along, but I am not fluent. Do you know how to say "I love data centers" in Spanish? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Well, then we'll just leave it with Rob you know, Butler I, loves I data centers. It, but I'm not going to try because I, I have a nine-year-old and six-year-old who, maybe they are fluent in Spanish. So, yeah. Right on. Yeah. Right, my friend. I will hopefully see you soon. Um, we will likely be coming through Austin in the very near future. Um, that would be I love cool. talking I to you. Love this to was a fun you. conversation. I, yeah. No, I, like I said, I, I, I've always enjoyed you and what you're about and, and what you're doing. Um, you're, you're one of the good ones in the industry for sure. I and, uh, that. 
you know? Yeah, no, like I said, I'm not just doing a stroke your ego. You like, you, you get it right. Like, um, your training is still my, one of my favorites I've ever done. It, it, it you know, it, it taught me everything I needed to know, <laughs> you know, where I, I learned enough to where I could have a conversation, but I also learned enough to realize that I need people like you, right? There's no reason for me to try and compete against somebody like you and say I'm as good as you because I'm not. And uh, <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, so it's good. So keep up that good work. Hopefully it's still going well for you. Yeah, for sure. And you you went to more than one, right? I think you came yeah, twice I, I or went to, I went Actually, I did the one in Denver. And I did the one in Dallas, so I did two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which again, I I I love to learn. You know, I just I did a um, an intellisys training um, back in January. It was a three day training on contact centers, and that was I had as much fun there as I did at yours in terms of I would end the day and my head would hurt <laughs> because I was like, man, what is all this stuff? But I already knew a lot about the space, but they were just going down this whole path. And it was all contact centers? centers? Oh, yeah, the whole thing. It was like three days wow. of nothing but contact center. And um, which is great, though, because it filled in a lot of the gaps that I didn't know. Yeah. And it, 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 it was super, super, super helpful. Um, and, you know, again, I would go do that any day of the week. If somebody like depending on the topic, if it's in my world that I felt like that I wanted to be an expert at, I'd go spend a week with somebody because, you know, if I'm going to sit there and say I'm an expert at it, then I want to be better than everybody else. And, you know, and I figure like as time goes on, like you, you know, people are going to continue to come to you, Sean, no matter what you do, because you are truly an expert in your space and you know it and you know it better than anybody else. So I'm trying to carve out my little corner of the world and what I know better than anybody else around these particular topics, because you can't really do that in telecom. There's too many of us that have been doing it a long time, and it's it's too commodity-based where there's not really a solution. It's more of, do you want this widget or that widget? So it's hard to, yep. to add real value to that world. But um, And so, yeah, like it's, it's why it's... Again, I, I'm, I'm trying to go further deep in a particular area. And again, it, it, it'll, it's going, what it's going to do is it's going to wall me off from other opportunities and I'm going to miss them, but that's okay, right? Because, you know, my guess is you pass on little, um, little telco deals that have nothing to do with data center all the time. You're like, oh, no, go away. So. Sometimes, but I'd like to leverage my team that I bring <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, of course. <laughs> to solve whatever yes, the problem might that. be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, you do that. Yeah. Well, Rob, yeah. well I, in fact, I was checking out your team, man. Time. Every time I turn around, your team on your site grows. I, you, I tell you, I think you missed your calling. You know, like you, uh, you definitely, I mean, I, I would bet you're, you're, I know you're great at sales, but dude, your marketing capabilities are something fierce and ferocious. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, my yeah. Uh, my marketing capabilities are going to be going to a whole new level over the next uh, six to twelve months. You just watch. If yeah, you like well, what I, if you like what you're, we've you're done so far, content right? You're creating the websites and doing yeah. most of the content like you, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Not many people know that, yeah. but uh, I've got brilliant people who know how to execute on the vision uh, sure. and make the content look beautiful. But uh, yep. All the content is, for the most part, it's yeah, all The content's the hard part. It's somebody who keeps having to do content for our stuff. Um, 
Jesus, man, that is like, that's a whole different animal trying to, because I mean, you know, like, as you know, you got to always have to think about like, what, like, what's my ultimate message here? What am I trying to, like, it's not about just this one piece of content. What's the, what's the storyline? What's the theme? What am I trying to ultimately teach people through my content? And, um, and that's a tough journey to do. And it's also tough to like, you know, put it in words because it's one thing to have it conversational, but it's another thing to write it down and then make it look good. It's not an easy thing to do. No, it is not. No, it is not. But yep. that's that's another two-hour podcast that we can maybe have at another time. <laughs> yes, it is. I know. That's why I was like, we're at the end, and I know I can talk about that. Um, and for anyone who's interested in, in some data center training, please reach out to me. If it's before June of 2018 and you're listening to this, we have another uh, training event that's going to be coming up, I believe, in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, in June of 2018. So definitely reach out to Sean at OpenSpectrumInc.com. And Rob, thank you again, my friend. I love you. Thank you for everything you've taught me over the years. And hopefully our paths will cross in person live so we can share a couple beers and let loose and be crazy in Austin sometime soon. I would love that. And if I get to your neck of the woods, I will look you up for sure. All right, brother. Sure. Peace. Have a good day. You too. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.